Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. We're going to do the rich man and Lazarus is a, a parable that we're going to look at over the course of the next two weeks. And part of the reason for doing that over the course of two weeks is you always want to let these things digest a little bit, give you a chance to read over the text a second time. As I point things out today, you may not have ever heard of these things, but as they bring to light some of the details that Jesus is putting in this parable, if you get a chance to read over it over the course of the next week, then by next Sunday you'll see even more because there's just some things that'll come out next week that really solidify what we're going to talk about today. Um, and we'll talk about the fact that there is a debate whether this is a parable or not, and I'm going to treat it like a parable, but let me just give you the, the outline of how people see that. The picture you see on the screen, some of you have been there, that is the synagogue that was found at the city of Magdala at the Sea of Galilee. And the reason it's so important, they found this in 2008, the reason that's so important is that Matthew says Jesus taught in all the synagogues in Galilee. Well, that's a synagogue in Galilee, and it's a first century synagogue in Galilee, and Magdala, of course, if you're from Magdala, you're a Magdalene, and if your name is Mary, then you're Mary the Magdalene. And that's just an amazing sight to go see that first century synagogue. And what's kind of cool is what they believe happened was when the Romans were coming to attack in Galilee, that the people of Magdala took their synagogue down themselves, and they spread the parts of the synagogue around the city and... The reason they did that is they didn't want Rome to destroy their synagogue. They figured, we'll take it down ourselves. Well, then the city got covered over in a landslide, and here it is today for you to see. And that's pretty amazing to live in a time when we can see something like that um, that we didn't know was there for 2,000 years. Okay, so we're going to be looking in Luke. Luke 16, 19 to 31. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to spend pretty much the whole morning looking at what's going on in Luke, with a couple deviations, but the deviations are pretty short, so. Okay, so Luke 16, 19 to 31. Now, as I mentioned, there is a debate. There's a debate among, well, there's a debate, let's just put it that way, who it's among is a question. There's a, a debate as whether this is a parable or not, and so I don't know how all of you have ever read this story whether you read it as the, a literal telling of something that happened or as Jesus describing a parable to convey a message, there is a debate. And I'll give you a couple reasons why this debate is there. First of all, there's no introduction that says, and Jesus told them a parable, right? So it just kind of flows right into this story about a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. There's nothing that says Jesus told them a parable. So that could lead you to think, well, 
is it not a parable? Now, the problem is, is in Luke, there are other parables that also don't have an introduction, but are clearly parables. But this is just one reason why we're, where people will say it's not a parable. The second one, and probably the most important one, is that there's somebody named in it. So there's a name that shows up, Lazarus, and scholars or people will say there's no other parables where you have a name involved. Generally, they're titles like it's a king or a landowner or a, a sower went out to sow, something like that. And here you get a name. And so this is one of the things that we're going to explore. Why would that name, Lazarus, show up in a parable? And is it random that that name showed up in a parable? Because if it's a parable, then Jesus is choosing his details very specifically to convey a message. And so I'll argue today that, and next week, that it's a parable and the, the name Lazarus is there for a reason. One thing that happens is we don't have, in the New Testament, descriptions of the afterlife. And nothing that says, here's exactly what, well, particularly hell. Here's what the afterlife is like in hell, right? We don't have that. And so what happens is people often will take this little parable that we're talking about, and they reduce it to a description of the afterlife. And that when you read it, the only thing they see is Jesus is trying to describe the afterlife. Although that doesn't really take a parable because most people had all kinds of things, ideas about what the afterlife is, and you don't really need a parable to do that. But what happens in our modern context is this will get reduced. And then people will say, as I've seen these arguments go back and forth, well, if you call it a parable, that you're somehow discounting the afterlife. And that's not true at all. Just because it's a parable with a message doesn't mean there's not justice in the afterlife. So when I talk about today this as a parable, it doesn't take away the, the, the magnitude that life beyond, extends beyond this and God's justice is still in effect. And that's going to be a key detail about how we talk about this. So we're not discounting the afterlife at all. But it's not the central focus. That's the point. And I'll tell you a, a couple reasons why scholars come up with that. So we're going to explore it as a parable. Now, I just told you that there's a, this argument about whether it's a parable or not. I pulled probably 10 articles about this parable or about this passage, and every person writing calls it a parable. So all my resources call it a parable. We're going to look at it as a parable, and you'll decide ultimately you're on your own whether. You, you believe it's a parable or not, and that's fine, and you'll judge my ability to explain if it is a, a parable. Either way, Jesus is still Lord, and that's what we want to focus on. Um, okay, so here's the problem with this particular one. Actually, it's, a, it's, it's sufficiently ambiguous. Well, you know, us modern Westerners, we don't like sufficiently ambiguous in our Bible. We want clear-cut, straightforward, just give me the business and tell me what, you know. We don't like sufficiently ambiguous. That makes us uncomfortable. And so what, what we see, I think, is when people will try to take something and then say, I don't like the ambiguity, so I'm going to try to make this, you know, a hard and fast rule about this story. 
well, this is one ambiguous story. And I'm going to argue that ambiguity is its strength, because what you see is as you read different scholars who approach this parable, they can pull out of it all kinds of amazing stuff that still apply to our walk with Jesus. But depending on what angle you come at it, you'll see something a little bit different. So um, if you read 10 articles, they'll each point out something slightly different about the parable. And that's actually a strength. It's, it causes, you know, Jesus has to say one thing and the whole world has to be able to read it and get something out of it. And that's a, it's a powerful thing about scripture, how different cultures can read it and still make it apply to something in their life. So, okay. So it's ambiguous. So if you, if you get that sensation that this seems ambiguous, well, you're right in the ballpark of ambiguity. Okay, here's one of, the, one of the main arguments that scholars bring up about this story, this parable that Jesus is going to tell, is that there's a common theme, meaning in the ancient world, they have, we have record of a number of different stories that have the themes of this story in it. One way scholars look at it is, is that Jesus took a common story and then put his own spin on it. He structured it in his own way to convey a message. So one of the common themes, and you can find this in Egyptian culture, you find it in Greco-Roman culture, you find it in Jewish culture, is the idea of a role reversal. One person was rich in this world, one person was poor. They get to the next world, everything's flipped. So role reversal is a very common story. A number of scholars have used the idea of, you know how we have a story about the pearly gates, right? So you go to the pearly gates and there's St. Peter and Peter's going to, you know, check the rolls and see if your name's on it. That's a common folklore story. None of us take that as a literal uh, event, but it, it conveys an idea about getting through the gates of heaven. So this is something very similar to that, that role reversal was a big deal in the ancient world. Frankly, role reversal is still a big deal today. There are people who their whole life is trying to take reverse the roles of the rich and the poor. A second one, so that's one common theme. A second theme is receiving a message from beyond the grave. So we see in this story, there's a role reversal. The rich, in, uh, once he dies, goes in the opposite direction. The poor goes to be wealthy in a sense. That's the role reversal. Then you get a second part of the story where the rich man, who's now in Hades, says, hey, send someone back to tell my family. Give them a warning, you know. The, the idea of a message, a message that comes from beyond the grave that is going to tell you, uh, warn you about the coming, the impending doom. That's the idea. So tons of stories from the ancient world where people are wanting to receive a message from beyond the grave. And I think even today, people are searching for something from beyond. There's just the human compulsion because we don't know, we don't have enough information, and so we just want to know that. So there's a message from beyond the grave. These are two very popular themes. In fact, let me give you one example from our modern world. So we're coming up, it's October, in two months we're going to be at Christmas time. And at Christmas time, you're probably going to hear a story about a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a rich man, and he's warned 
by his friend, Jacob Marley, of an impending doom in the afterlife, right? The ghost of Jacob Marley comes back. Ebenezer Scrooge is the rich man who then would suffer if he doesn't repent and change his ways. And all of us can see what a powerful story this is, because even the idiomatic phrase, you're being a Scrooge, everybody knows what that means. You're being a miser with your money. And there are eternal consequences to being miserly with your money. So this is a very, it's a very common theme, even to today. And so I just want to show you that what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take a story that the whole world, all of his audience knows the story, but then he's going to start inserting his own details. And the details, what we'll look at today, are what really convey his message and who he's very pointedly saying, this rich man is you and you better watch out. And that's a, so that's what we have to look at today. So Christmas Carol is just one example of the role reversal and a message from beyond the grave type story that's even in our folklore today. Now, let's take that. So you have, this is the, one of the main arguments from scholars is that you find these stories all over the place. That's why they say it, he's using a story from the culture. Okay, now what I want to do is we have to review a little bit. It's always good to review the idea of a parable. Because if we, there's a tendency, if we forget what, how parables are used, then we, we can often misread them, and they have been misread for a long time. So we've, we've done this in the past, so it'll be a quick review. There's some characteristics to a parable, and they're very powerful, and it's, it's a very powerful way of conveying a truth. Um, so the first thing is, and as we notice, all of Jesus's parables are stories. Now, a, a proverb is also a parable, but story parables, as Jesus uses them, are very powerful. The first thing is, is everybody loves stories. So we love the Christmas story, and we love the redemption in the end, and we love the fact that, you know, Scrooge came around, and those stories the reason the story is so powerful is you can pick it up and carry it with you. They, it lasts with you for a long time. So a well-told story, you can carry that with you throughout your life. And it carries something very powerful. There's a saying from the rabbis that say, a teaching without a parable is like a basket without handles. If you have a basket with no handles, how do you pick it up? So you need a parable. The parable becomes the handles to how you live. You can take this story, you can take the teaching with you. So that's number one. Very powerful. Second, it's fictional. And sometimes we bristle at this, but it's fictional. And that's, the power in that is that Jesus controls the details. And the reason this is important is when, as we'll see, there's a couple details that he's going to drop in here that the moment you see them, you say, why is he telling me that? Why is he telling me the color of the clothes that the rich man's wearing? If you don't know why he's telling you that, you'll miss something. Why is he telling me how many brothers this person has? And all of that is, it, it's like an arrow leading to something. It's pointing towards something. So he controls the details. Now, in the story, even though it's a fictional story, it carries a powerful truth. It carries a powerful theological truth. And so what we want to look at is, 
What's the powerful truth that this story is carrying along, and how is Jesus using it in his ministry, both today and then transcendently, how does that apply to us today or across um, time? So it carries the truth. It's a very effective way of carrying the truth. There's a, a, a rabbi who teaches at the Jerusalem University College in Israel, and he says his whole thing about describing a parable is, you know, if you have to convey a, a message that your enemy is not going to like, one powerful way to do it is through story. You create a story that carries the message, and what it allows is for your enemy to go through self-discovery. You muddle over the story, you think about it, you meditate on it, and the next thing you know, God's message comes popping up into your own head, and because it's your self-discovery, well, who are you going to argue with, God or yourself? And that's a powerful way to get someone to come around to your side. Okay, then the last thing is, and Jesus does this in this parable, is he often adds a twist, something you're not expecting. He does this, the crowd would expect something from this parable. Jesus twists it, says, nope, I'm not going to give you that. So he adds something a little bit shocking to it. And that, of course, is supposed to be the punch that, that wakes you up to see what's going on. Okay, so those are the first four things about parable, and that's Jesus, he's a master communicator. He communicates using cultural stories that the audience would automatically understand, and then, you know, our, our, the hardest part for us is understanding those details. So, for instance, in doing parables, he's a, he's a first century Jewish rabbi. That's, he's called rabbi by, by his disciples, he's called rabbi by Gentiles, he's called rabbi by everybody, and as a first century Jewish rabbi, your main source for parables is going to be the Old Testament. You're going to be reaching back into that Old Testament because your audience knows the Old Testament, and you're going to use those details. So that's one place that we falter because we don't know our, the Old Testament as well, and Jesus expects that you're going to know the Old Testament. So we'll see some examples of that today. The second part is, what are the cultural things, right? If I was going to tell a parable today, I would have to search for the cultural metaphors that all of you would get, that I would assume that all of you would know. And I wouldn't be able to do that because we're not a storytelling culture, and I'm not that good at ginning those things up. But if I did, I would have to use something that everybody knows. And that immediately you would think, ah, I know who he's talking about. All right, so he, this is exactly what Jesus does. Okay, so at this point, that's introduction. Common story, Jesus is going to start twisting the details to say, to, to make his point. That's, this is the hardest part for us. Let's understand the details. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have, I'm going to read through the story of rich man. Oh, wait, sorry. Cut that. Let me back up. Let me tell you the answer first, because I want you to, as we read through the text and go through these details, I want to give you the answer first. So, everything in this parable is going to be directed at the priests. There are other parables where Jesus directs it perfectly at the priests in language, cultural language that they would understand. So, this is, I'm giving you the answer ahead of time. He's going to direct this at the priests, and then I put in parentheses the Levites as well, because they're both in the Sadducee party. 
or the Sadducee sect, I should say. Every detail is going to point right to these to the priests. The second thing, and this is one of the main themes, is it has to do with God's justice. Now, the fact is, God's justice extends beyond our living this world. It goes into the afterlife. And we all say, thank you, God, for doing that, because why, why do we suffer through this world and people who are being unjust look like they're benefiting? So it goes to God's justice. It goes to the idea of resurrection. Well, if you can think about what the Sadducees think about resurrection, you can now start picking up some of these details in the story. And then there's, a, of course, very strong theme of if you have wealth or you have political power, which the priests did in Jesus' day, you better, you have a, a responsibility to wield that power correctly and use your wealth correctly. And very strong message of those in power and those with wealth, how do you, how do you choose to wield that power? Okay, so again, common theme. This is a, and this responsibility and wealth is a common theme within Luke. So you'll see that all throughout Luke. Even chapter 16, the whole chapter 16 in Luke is about wealth. How do you handle wealth? How do you handle your power? Um, okay, now here's what I want to do. Now I want to read the text. We're going to read it one time through, and I'm going to discipline myself as best I can not to comment, and it's going to be difficult. I'll do, we'll read it next week again, and I'll make comments. but. All I want to do is just read straight through. I pulled this from the New Living Translation, which, well, I won't comment on that. Okay, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered in sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Verse 22. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. Verse 25. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over from you to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. The rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. Verse 29, But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, 
Then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, that's the parable. Took everything in me not to make comments. So, as I mentioned, it's directed at the priests. Now, if you, if you can start thinking about the beliefs of the priests, you'll start hearing all the things that Jesus is going to challenge them on, right? So, it's about the priests, it's about God's justice, and their responsibility of wielding wealth and power. So, what we have to do, we're going to spend almost the entire morning this morning just thinking about the priests, how this is directed at the priests. And I want to show you some details that would immediately pop up if we knew our Old Testament. Or, culturally, how the priests, what their theological beliefs were. So, without a doubt, the rich man is the priest. Now, how do we know that? Well, the first thing I would point out is, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 1 of chapter 16. So, if you, with, with chapter 16 open, if you read chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus tells a different parable, and it starts out with, there was a rich man. Now, in that parable, the rich man is God. And we know that from the context of the parable, because God has a manager. The rich man has a manager. That's, very, that's a common parable where God is the king, and has a, or he's a landowner, and he lends out the land, or he's a rich man with a, with a manager. But in this parable, the rich man, Jesus now gives us a detail. He says he, he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, the moment he gives you that detail, if we're not a first century audience, we say, why? Why is he telling us that? Well, it comes from the text, and it has to do with the priests. Now, I'm going to do this quickly in the interest of time, but go back and read it over the, the next week. I put it on your sheet. In Exodus 28, verse 5, well, starting in verse 1, there's a whole idea of priestly garments. In Exodus 28, leading up to verse 5, is the, Hey, Aaron, all of your sons, who are going to be the priests, here's the garments they're going to wear. And so if you, down at the bottom, I know that it's got to be an eye chart if you're reading that on an iPhone. Um, impossible to see. But verse 5 says this, Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. So who is, in Jesus' day, is rich and wears purple and fine linen? The priests do. Now that right there, so if you read uh, an Orthodox, Jew, opi uh, Orthodox Jewish opinion on this parable, they'll say he's talking about the priests. Why? Because they have Exodus pr practically memorized and they know what priests wear. And that detail says, I, I now know where I'm pointing. Now, I'll show you a detail next week that'll pretty much solidify which priest he's talking about. But anyways, so this is, this is part of us pulling the details out of a parable and how to interpret them. So he's, the rich man is the priest. He's wearing purple and fine linen. That's how we know. And the priests in Jesus' day were in power. They had all the wealth and the People were not happy. So they have, down at Jericho, they've found priestly houses that are, they're fabulously wealthy. 
And how did the priests get wealthy? Well, they don't have an inheritance. They don't have land. They get, they get wealthy off the people of Israel, right? So, and they're in political power. They're in cahoots with Rome, running the temple. What could go wrong when religious leaders are also in political power, right? You can never imagine that, something bad happening out of that. And it's at the expense of the people. And so people were not happy about this. So the moment you see Jesus directing this at the priest, you know, all the people in the crowd are like, oh, he's going to get them, you know? They know it's coming because they feel the same way. So that's how we know the rich man. And then I'll show you one next week too. There's another... Now, I'm just going to do this for so that you are aware of another approach to the purple and linen. This is a second approach. We end up at the same thing. We end up at a priest. So some scholars will say, well, purple is the color of royalty, right? So kings wear purple. In fact, in Jesus' day, Rome had a monopoly on purple. Purple was outlawed, and you weren't allowed to wear purple clothes. So it's because that is something that only in the Roman society, the highest in power can wear. So purple equals king, generally, when you see purple. And linen, of course, is a priest. So what happens when you combine the political power of a king with the religious authority of a priest? Well, as I mentioned, things go, things go poorly is what happens. Things go out of control. And for about 150 years prior to Jesus coming on the scene, there was a, a dynasty of priest kings called the Hasmoneans. Now, this would be like us in 2020 saying, remember back in the 40s and the 50s? Because that's us talking about the 40s and the 50s of the 1900s. And we can easily, we still have memory of that recent history. Well, back in the 50 BC, you have uh, a group of, it's a family called the Hasmoneans that became a dynasty, and I, this is from Wikipedia, but I just want to show you that they took on both the priest and the, or the high priest and the king. So you have uh, Aristobulus, high priest and king, Alexander Janaeus, high priest and king. Then you have Hyrcanus, high priest and king. So look what's happening. You have the same person is, is holding both political, or both seats religious authority, and the king. And this drove the Pharisees nuts. Because as a king, you're supposed to be from a descendancy of David and from the tribe of Judah. Well, they weren't. And we've seen this even in our church history. When the religious authority, the high priest, or maybe the pope is where it often happened, be also becomes the political authority. Well, then, you know, all things can fall apart very quickly. And that's exactly what was happening is as they would consolidate power and the religious authorities hated it. So when Jesus says this, purple and linen, you can easily have a very close memory of, ki of priestly kings who consolidated political power at the same time they were the religious authority. So that's just a second way. You, you end up, re either path you take with purple and linen, whether you go back to Exodus or you go back even a hundred years, you end up at the same point. And that is, that the point is, the priests are the, who Jesus is directing this at. Okay, next, and I've already mentioned this. The priests and the Levites were of the religious sect called the Sadducees. Now, there were Sadducees 
people, priests who defected. Uh, we call them the Essenes. They said, you guys are corrupt. We're going to go off and make our own little sect. But the Sadducee party is who the priests and the Levites belong to. Now, one of the main differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, can you imagine Jesus telling a parable where he gets the priest to ask for someone to go back from the dead, right? And the crowd, again, is elbowing each other, laughing, because now once the priest who thinks there is no afterlife realizes there is, now all of a sudden he wants a resurrection, even though he didn't believe that. And of course, that's part of the parable. So if we look at uh, verse 30, 16 verse 30, the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead. So it's just, it's genius. So Jesus is putting that detail in, this conversation, because he's forcing the priest to admit that in the afterlife, justice keeps going on, and resurrection is part of that. And then he forces the priest, or he has the priest in the story, say, look, if you send someone back from the dead, we'll repent. Well, of course, they don't, you know, that's... So, anyways, I just want to show you that detail. If we forget that they don't believe in the resurrection, we miss the detail in the, in the parable. Another one, this is another belief of the, of the Sadducees. Because they, they saw God's justice, they said, look, there is no afterlife. Nothing happens after you die. All of God's justice is meted out in the world today. So if you're suffering today, well, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. And that, of course, is theologically incorrect. Sometimes we suffer. That's the story of Job, who also was covered with sores. Job suffered even though he was righteous. So their idea was, if you're rich, well, God must be blessing you. If you're poor, then you must have sinned, right? All justice is meted out in this world. That was the idea of the Sadducees. And of course, the Pharisees said, no way. God's going to, he's going to balance the scales in the next, in the world to come. And here's how it shows up in the story. Uh, verse 25, Abraham says to him, and notice he calls him son, right? It's father Abraham and son, which means he's Jewish. He believes in God and he believes that Abraham's his father. And he says this, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted. That's exactly what the Sadducees believed, that you get what you deserve in this lifetime. So, again, it's a little teeny knife that he's twisting to point out the theology of the Sadducees is incorrect. And then he says, and Lazarus had nothing, so now he's here being comforted, and you're in anguish, because lo and behold, you passed away. And you were surprised to find out that your consciousness keeps going on to the next world. So there's ju God's justice is extended. Now, the last piece, this is the last part from the priests and the Levites, is if you remember, the priests and the Levites only believed that the Torah was God's words. So kind of like the Samaritans too, the Samaritan Bible, they only took Genesis through Deuteronomy. They didn't accept the prophets. Well, especially for the Samaritans, because boy, do they look bad in the, in the prophets. So why would we want those as our scripture? We'll stick with the things that make us look good. So the, the Sadducees, 
They say, no, 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 we only believe in the Torah, and because there's no resurrection in the Torah, we, we don't believe it exists. Right? So watch what Jesus does. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses, that's the Torah, and who else? The prophets. And right there, he's pointing out the fault you have is you're not paying attention to the whole scope of God's words. What do the prophets say about ignoring the poor? Right? The prophets are railing against those in power who ignore the poor. Right? How dare you not use your wealth properly? What do the prophets say about the religious leaders? They rail against the religious leaders. Right? They'd become corrupted and the whole place was going down the tube. So if you read the prophets there, you priests, you would hear God's voice clearly. Oh, it's so pointed at the idea that they don't believe or they're not following. Again, it's like, hey, I don't like that scripture, so I'm just going to ignore that one. Let me choose the scripture that really fits me because I'm in power and I have money and you don't. Okay, so just a review. You have Sadducees. That's important to remember about the priests because of their, belief, their theological belief system is different than the Pharisees and different than Jesus' theological beliefs. They thought there's no resurrection. Jesus is saying, uh, stand by, there is a resurrection. They, uh, the idea that justice all happens in this world, nope, resurrection and the afterlife is a form of God's justice, that the, the scales will be balanced, and the idea that only the Torah is God's word. Now, I'm watching the time, and I want to make sure we're almost done, but let me show you one piece that comes from comes from Jewish writings. And Jewish scholars, there's a prayer. There's a prayer that's said every day. It goes way back, and they think that it started in the first century BC, that the, that the, the first parts of this prayer start showing up. And what they notice in the prayer is three times you're praising God as a God who resurrects. So they're praising the resurrection. And the idea is, that the priests were in power, the priests said there is no resurrection, and that really did not sit well with all the people and the Pharisees, and so they begin developing this prayer that includes a praise of resurrection. And that's pointedly against the priests. But there's a piece from Jewish writings, and it's fairly early. It says this, Those who do not believe in the resurrection have no share in the world to come. That's from the, the Mishnah. So they're talking about who's not going to get into heaven? Those who don't believe in the resurrection. Now, does that fit our parable? That's perfectly what the parable's saying. Pointed right at those priests and Levites who don't believe in it. So this even, we have something from Jewish writings that matches what Jesus is saying theologically. So I just wanted to let you know that there's more going on here. Okay, so let's finish with this. I'm almost done. There's going to be some things next week that we're going to look at, and this is a little teaser for next week, so you'll want to, you'll want to show up, you, and it's something to think about all week long. Jacob, who's called Israel, so now I'm, I'm taking you all the way back to Genesis here for a second. Jacob, who's called Israel, he has 12 sons. Those sons, more or less, break out into 12 tribes. Joseph gets divided, but one of those sons is called Levi. 
and he becomes the tribe of Levi, or the Levites. Now, what happens is, the Levites get set aside by God. They don't get a land inheritance. So, when they get into the promised land, they receive no land. They're supposed to be spread out among the people, and they're supposed to be running the tabernacle, or eventually running the temple. And that's what you find in the first century. In the first century, it's the priests and the Levites running the temple. Now, where do the priests come in? Well, Levi has a son eventually. One of the sons is named Aaron. His brother is Moses. They're both Levites. And God says, Aaron, any one of your descendants is going to be a priest. So all priests, here's what we could say, all priests are Levites. So all priests belong to the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites are priests. So that's, I want to show you that when we say Levites, it includes priests. This is just how they broke it out. But let me point something out, and this is what we'll end with today. Notice they receive no inheritance. Now, what are they doing in Jesus' day? They don't, who was the wealthiest in Jesus' day? The priests and the Levites, they didn't have an inheritance. But because of their collusion with Rome and off the backs of the, of the normal Jewish people, they become wealthy and powerful. So would you be upset? Well, of course we would, right? Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the baseless hatred that eventually rose up and a group, either the zealots or the sicari, and they would go after the priests, just like Peter did when he cuts off the, the, the high priest's servant's ear. They hated the priests because of this, the corruption and all the... So the priests don't get an inheritance. Now, let me show you how this parable is going to address this, and we'll do, we'll do more of this next week. One thing we didn't talk about yet today is this character, Lazarus. Why is Lazarus mentioned in the parable? If Jesus gives you the name, there's got to be a reason. There is, and again, we'll talk more next week, I put the reference on your sheet. Her name is Tal Ilan. She's a Jewish scholar of the Second Temple period. She teaches in Germany, but was trained in Israel. She has a book, probably not light reading. It's a lexicon of Jewish names from 300 BC through 280, something like that. 500 year period of Jewish names. And what she says is that the name Lazarus is a Greek variant of the name Eleazar. Now, who is Eleazar? from the Old Testament. Well, Eleazar is Abraham's servant. So, could you imagine a story where this character who has the same name, one in Greek, Eleazar, shows up with Abraham? Well, of course, now that makes sense why you have that name. Eleazar, in Genesis 15-2, is Abraham's servant. And this is what's so critical. Abraham, in We'll do this next week. Abraham in Genesis 15, his complaint, God says, look, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to give you a blessing and an inheritance. And Abraham's complaint to God is, but I have no kids. And he says, if I have no kids, then my servant, 
Eleazar stands to inherit all of my blessings. So there's an issue of inheritance happening here. So you, can you imagine a parable where the person who does receive the blessing from Abraham is Lazarus, who's, who happens to be Abraham's servant, and who doesn't get part of the inheritance? The actual natural-born son of Israel, Levi, and all of his brothers. So the twist that they put in here is, by the way, Lazarus is a Gentile. So can you imagine Jesus showing up and pointing out to the religious leaders, you think you're getting the inheritance. I'm telling you, you know, uh, John the Baptist says, don't think that just because you're a son of Abraham, you're getting away with anything. From these stones, God could raise up sons of Abraham. So there's a theme throughout the Gospels that says, don't get arrogant because you're a son of Abraham. God can easily turn this inheritance over to the Gentiles. So this little piece is going to be important next week, and then I'll show you a couple more details that'll just solidify the idea that Jesus is pointing this towards the priests. So just a quick review. It's a common story, role reversal, rich to poor. Those are common. We still have them today. There's a common story of someone being sent back from the dead. I'll show you how Jesus puts a twist in there. And then Jesus takes this and points it right at the priests who had both power and wealth and were, of course, ignoring the poor that were living in the land. And that's their main sin right there. So that's Lazarus and the rich man part one. We'll finish it up and I'll show you more details next week. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.